right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, and we are going to land in chapter 13 this morning. We'll look at a handful of verses there, and this morning we're going to take some time to, uh, to talk about something that I actually revisit periodically in my own life, because I know that there's a reality of when you actually make a commitment to follow Jesus, that there's something that happens in your life over time in that journey that isn't altogether good. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So if you've, if you've come to a place of faith in Jesus where you've turned your life over to him, there's that moment or that season in time where you got to a point of desperation in your life where you realize your own brokenness and your sin and your inability to move forward in life. And so it caused you to call out to God. So you get introduced to Jesus. You understand his death means that you are forgiven. There's a freedom that comes. And there's this kind of messy excitement that follows that. Anybody remember that? And there's that kind of like, okay, now what? My, now my life's totally changed, but I don't know what it means. But you're leaning in on everything. And life's kind of unpredictable. It's, it's kind of exciting. It's kind of scary. It requires risk and courage. And so everything's kind of upside down. And so you're in this period for a while. And then what happens over time is that things start to settle down in your life. And what used to be kind of messy and exciting and full of risk and courage now becomes something that's manageable. It's something that we, we, it becomes predictable. It becomes like it, it, where the things that used to be leaning in and God's challenging you and you're kind of like a mess in a good way. Now, now all of that faith that you had just kind of settles into now I'm just kind of like I got some issues in my life. I'm going to manage them. I'm going to work on them a little bit. I'm going to attend church, maybe throw a little bit of money at the church, maybe serve if I feel guilty enough. And then I'm just going to kind of cruise week in and week out. And this is my faith. Believe it or not, that's the majority of the church in America. That's what we ease into, and we call it Christianity. Do you know that's not the Christianity of the Scriptures? That's not the faith of the Bible, and that's not what Jesus gave his life for on the cross? There's so much more that Jesus has given his life for for us to experience in life. And the, and the best way I can kind of describe what that looks like is that it's, it's this difference between faith being civilized and faith being uncivilized. I always think, well, uncivilized, that's not very good. Actually, when it comes to faith, uncivilized is what we want to be. And you've probably heard me quote the great theologian, Mickey, you know, the trainer of Rocky. You know, the Rocky, like the Rocky, 15 Rocky movies or whatever there is now, right? Back in Rocky III, when, when, when Rocky had lost the edge, you know, and, and things were kind of going downhill. I remember there's this, the come to Jesus moment between Mickey and Rocky in this bedroom. And, and Rocky lo or Mickey looks at Rocky in the eye and he said, the worst thing possible that could happen to any fighter happened to you. He said, somewhere along the line, you became civilized. And you lost the edge of what it means to be a fighter. And I think for us in our faith, the worst thing possible has happened to some of us along this journey of faith is that we've become civilized in our approach to God. And because of that, we don't see anything powerful. We don't see anything uh, miraculous. We don't take any risks. We don't, we don't demonstrate any courage. Why? Because it's just predictable. And probably the best way to describe it is it's boring. And we don't want to say that because it's not supposed to be. But if we were honest, it's boring. There's no challenge, there's no risk, there's no thrill, there's no adventure, there's nothing. It's just week in, week out, do the same thing, come to church, sit in the same seat, and I'm not pointing or looking at anybody right now, I'll close my eyes, but just doing the same thing over and over. There has to be more. And in Numbers chapter 13, there's, a, there's a, this amazing story about the perspective of two different sets of people 
and how they saw the way God works and how they saw their faith and how that determined what they saw for the future. So we're going to be in Numbers chapter 13, but to give you some context before we read some verses from that passage. So Israel, being God's people on the planet, God had led them out of over 400 years of slavery in Egypt and done these miraculous things by bringing plagues on Egypt. And eventually, you know the story, God leads them out of Egypt. They cross through the Red Sea on dry land. It's an incredible miracle. And now God is leading them into something that he has promised them for years. It's a land of their own. And he's wanting to give it to them. And in preparation for that, we pick up the story, is that God tells Moses to send in 12 spies into the land to kind of scout out to see what it looks like in preparation for them to launch into this land that God's giving them. And as the 12 go in, they come back and they report to Moses and the people what they've witnessed in the land. And that's kind of where we pick up the story. And what we're going to pick up is this incredible reality of seeing the same thing in front of you, but seeing something completely different according to the way the way you see God work or what you expect of God. And it's the difference between a lens of being civilized and controlled and managed and safe and a lens of being uncivilized, which leaves everything up to God and trusts him fully and then watch God, watches God do something miraculous in you and through you. So let's start. If you have your Bibles, let me read from verse 25 and we'll read all the way down to verse 33. And this is the story where we pick it up. Verse 25. So it says, at the end of the 40 days, they returned the spies from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. And verse 30, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we, will, we are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in the land are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, which come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to them like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them as we seemed to them. So in this story, I want us to just look at this, is that you have lots of verses about this negative reality of what they see, and then you have one verse embedded in the middle, at verse 30, that is this perspective that God wants us to have. So I want to start with just looking at kind of the lens of an uncivilized faith. What we look at, how we see things around us, the way God is working in our life, when our life becomes manageable and predictable and safe and civilized. It's the way these 10 spies were looking at the reality of the land that God was giving them. So the first reality is this, of a civilized faith, is that it sees only the problem. So when you read through verses 25 to 29, you, you see that they, they see the fruit of the land, but what they see is they see how big people are, how strong the cities are, how fortified the cities are, and they only see the problem, not the possibility. 
There's no faith in the lens that they're looking through. And so all they can see is people are huge. Our enemies are there. There's no way we're going to be able to do this. And all they can see is the problem. There's a problem when all we see is the problem. When all we see is the problem, we don't see God. We can't see past it because it's the thing that dominates our mind. And they can't see the possibility of a beautiful land. They even say it flows with milk and honey. It's producing incredible fruit. They That's one little line in the midst of the cities are too strong, the people are too big, and we can't do this. All they can see is the problem. What do we call that? We call that a pessimist. So it's not trying to put a positive spin on our faith and our reality. It's realizing that when we look through the lens of only seeing the problem, that's all we're ever going to see is just the problem. And when you only see the problem, you know what you try to do? You try to manage the problem. It's like trying to manage your sin. It's never going to change. You need somebody beyond you and above you who frees you from your sin that changes everything. But when we go into management mode, all we're trying to do is manage a problem that we can't manage. They can't manage this problem on their own. God has to provide it for them. It's the difference between, you can use this, this kind of the phraseology we use in sports, which is you play to win or you play not to lose. If you've seen that, anybody see the Super Bowl last year? You know, Atlanta Falcons, they played really great for the first half and then they tried to manage the game and then they ended up losing. Same kind of thing happens in everyday life where we... we we want to advance, but suddenly something in us says, you know what, I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to make sure I don't lose anything. And in trying to hang on to things, what do we do? We lose them. I've told you so many stories about my high school basketball coach. And usually they're positive, but I have one negative story to tell you about, about him. And I might have told this before. But honestly, I know he's a human being, and I know he's imperfect, even though he, to me he was a phenomenal basketball coach. But this was one of the only errors I ever saw him make in his coaching ability. Because the decisions he would make in the middle of a game I would always sit back and go, wow, how did he have that insight? How did he know how to make that adjustment? And so we were a small Christian school with the tallest player being six feet tall. Nobody could dunk, nobody could jump, nobody could run. We were slow and not very talented. So our ability was to outthink and to outlast the teams that we played. And we were in my junior year, we were in the playoffs against Crossroads, Crossroads um, uh, High School, which at, at the time was ranked number one in the state for for their division. In fact, they eventually would become the state champions, but at that time they were ranked in southern section for CIF number one, and so it was literally a David and Goliath experience. And so the game was bigger than just one high school contained, so it was actually at Santa Monica City College, and it was packed. It's the biggest crowd our school had ever played in front of. And so we went into this environment, and everybody, including newspapers and everything, like there's no way that L.A. Baptist has a shot against Crossroads. Crossroads produced like NBA stars in the future. I mean, this is a really, really good program. So we get into it, and, and my coach, like he always does, he, he lines out a game plan, and we are working the game plan to a T. In the first half, we're up by 10 points. That's unheard of. I mean, Crossroads has blown out everybody they played in the playoffs. We're up by 10, and we get to halftime, and we're up by 10 on crossroads. And in the locker room, you could feel the excitement, and we're like, like there was like this belief starting to settle, like, this could happen. We could beat the number one team. And then we got into the third quarter, and about halfway through the quarter, third quarter, we were still maintaining this 10-point lead. I'm like, this is incredible. Now, I wasn't good enough to start at that point, and so I was sitting on the bench. I had the front row seat watching this. And then it happened towards the end of the third quarter, and I couldn't believe it. We were up by 10. Coach calls a timeout, he pulls us over, and we had a certain offense that was kind of a stall offense, which the whole point was to hang onto the ball, not shoot, but just take time off the clock. And when I played high school basketball, there was no shot clock. There was no, like, you had to shoot the ball by a certain time. So you could hang on the ball as long as you could. So he says, okay, we're going to go into a stall. And I was like, 
this isn't what we normally do, but I mean, we're playing crossroads and there's like 3,000 people and it's crazy and we're going to win the game. And so we go into a stall. We bring the ball down the court. We just start passing it around. We start rotating through. We start passing it around. Crossroads is way more talented than us. And they started figuring this out. And so this is what happened the rest of the game. We'd bring the ball down. We'd stall. They'd steal it and they'd score. Then we get the ball inbounds. We come down, pass it around, stall. They'd steal the ball. They'd go down and score over and over and over again. In fact, you could see it happening on the floor. The five guys on the floor, you could just see that they were just deflating in front of our eyes. In fact, one of our guys, he got the ball across the half court. He stopped to pick up the ball, and he was so rattled because this was not a normal rhythm for us. He turns to his left, and he passes the ball to absolutely no one right out of bounds. I'm like, oh, we're done now. And I remember that, that happened the rest of the game, and I remember I still to this day remember the score. We lost 45 to 42 to the eventual state champion. We had three points. 45 to 42 is a low-scoring game. But I remember looking back and, and thinking, that's like the only time I ever saw my coach do something that I know he regretted because he was trying to hang on to something. He was trying to, when we had risked the first three quarters pretty much, now we just pulled back and played it safe. And I think sometimes in our faith, we're like, oh, let's play it safe. Let me maintain what I have. That's why Jesus said if you wanted to, what, gain life, you have to do what? Lose it. You can't hang on to it. It'll escape you. So civilized faith sees only the problem, tries to manage it, and then gets in trouble. Second thing is civilized faith focuses on the limitations. If you, if you look at verse 31, it, it talks about how basically they're looking at the people and they're saying they're just too big. They, there's no way. When we compare ourselves to them, we have limits physically. They're physically bigger than us. There's no way. And, and in a sense, and I said this first service, and this, there's not, not, not to me to be offensive or to downplay this. It's not that it's a bad way of doing it. But one of the things that we like to do when we're managing things is we, anyone ever made a pro and con list? Like you take out a piece of paper and you draw a line down the middle and you're like, okay, pros and cons. And then you, you kind of fill up those columns and then whatever one has more in it, then that's what you decide to do. Not that that's a wrong thing to do. In fact, somebody came up to me after service, showed me their notes app on their phone and like, look, here's my pro and con list. <laughs> they had just made this last week and processing a job opportunity. But I think sometimes what we do is when we, when we do that, what we're doing is we're managing something that is beyond us. And if we look at that con list and it's got one more than the pros, I, oh, we shouldn't do this. What are we doing? We're comparing our ability to the situation. That's what, that's what these spies are doing. They were looking, they're saying, listen, they're tall, they're strong, there's no way we compare. They're, they're looking on paper, they had no business trying to enter the promised land. They were looking at their limitations. And civilized faith always looks in terms of what's limiting, what you can't do. In fact, that's, I think, one of the challenges that you and I face when we live this way is that there's a mantra that starts to describe our lives. When we're confronted with something that's challenging or overwhelming or risky, this is what comes out of our mouth. I can't. I can't do that. I don't have the ability to do that. The pro and cons list comes out. Even in your mind, you think, there's no way I have the ability to do this. And even if you feel like God's leaning in on you, you're thinking to God, you got the wrong person. Don't you know who I am? As though God doesn't know who you are. He created you. But God works in this reality. And so when we get to that, we're looking at just the limitations. Can you think of a season in your life where you've ever said to yourself or you've said out loud, I can't do this. You don't have to raise your hand and expose yourself, but all of us have done that. I can give you so many times in my life where I was confronted with something I know that God was pushing on me, but I felt like I can't do this. And I would say, and I said so many times, I can't. I had said many times, I can never be a senior pastor. That came out of my mouth so many times throughout 
before I went to Bible college, when I was in Bible college, when I was on staff at a church, people would ask me, what are you going to do with your life? Well, I know one thing I'm not going to do. I'm not going to be a senior pastor because I can't do that. I grew up at church on the way in Van Nuys. Jack Hayford was my pastor growing up. Some of you know who Jack Hayford is, like the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and then there's Jack Hayford, right? <laughs> He's like the pastor of all pastors, and I grew up with that. And then I was on staff with Dennis Easter, who he was spoken here. Dennis is an amazing leader, so I'm looking at Jack Hayford, I'm looking at Dennis Easter, I'm looking, oh no. I'm looking at the paper, and like, it doesn't add up. And then after I started to entertain the idea that maybe I could be a senior pastor, then I was confronted with this thing called church planting. And I remember watching, like, all these people go out and plant churches, and they were, like, a little off. Church planters are, like, a little crazy, you know, like, always on the edge, you know. It's kind of like, remember, like, John the Baptist, like, eating locusts and crazy stuff? That was church planters. Like, I can't church plant. And all in one fell swoop, I became a senior pastor and a church planter overnight. But I kept saying, God, I can't do this. I can't do this. And God said, yes, you can. Yes, you can. And you're going to. And I think that all of us come to those moments where we've said to God, I can't do this. And God, honestly, he doesn't really care what you think you can and cannot do. He's just waiting for you to realize it isn't your ability. It isn't your pro and con list. It isn't the limitations that you've placed on yourself. Why? Because God is doing this and God is calling you forward into something. And he's wanting you to step and say, I can what through God's power. So we look at the limitations. And the final reality of a civilized faith, and this is what happens is, it doesn't just stay contained in us. It actually poisons others around us. So if you look at verses 32 and 33, you start to see what's happening is that this report, they're giving a bad report. So Caleb and Joshua, I mean, we see Caleb and his passions. They're, they're saying, hey, we can do this. And then you've got the other 10, and they're like, we can't do this. So they're now, remember, they're presenting this to Moses and Aaron and all of Israel, and they're basically saying, we can't do this. We shouldn't do this. This is too dangerous. Remember, this is a group of people that just came out of Egypt. They don't even have a homeland, and they're saying, we can't do this. We'd be better just to kind of stay wandering around. They say, we can't do this. And so what happens as this progresses is that it starts to impact and influence all of Israel. In fact, if you keep reading through the story and you get through Numbers 13, you get into Numbers 14 by the 10th verse of Numbers 14, you know what happens? Is that all of Israel is in an uproar and they actually want to take Joshua and Caleb, the two that believe God can do something, and they want to kill them. That's how, that's how venomous this report is. That's how poisonous it is. It actually leaks into Israel's kind of lens of how they see God, and now they're wanting to kill the two that think that God can do the miraculous. Isn't that crazy? And so we think, well, you know what, that's just me. I, I'm just a pessimist. But no, you know that you, when you're a pessimist and you see through the lens of your limitations and you only see the problem, it doesn't just end with you. It becomes the story for other people. And can you think about a moment in your life where either you have or somebody else has, has said something in a negative tone that limits what you think God can do and you start to believe it? In fact, some probably here today, there's something that's been said in your past that you latched onto, and it's the very thing that has limited what God wants to do in your life because you believed it, and it was a lie. It wasn't what God wanted for you because it's poisoned your soul, and now all you see is the lens of poison that's clouded. Think about the amount of influence that you have in other people's lives. And you ever been in a room like that where there's like somebody who has this idea and they're passionate about it and they're believing in it and then one person, one person speaks up and says, I don't think that's realistic. I don't think that's going to work. And then everybody else in the room goes, yeah, 
I don't think it is. And before you know it, that one person feels like an absolute idiot. Why? Because they thought, how could I be foolish enough to think this would work? But what would it be like to be in a room? Instead of being discouraged, you're encouraged when you feel like you're leaning into something God's wanting to do in your life. That somebody comes alongside of you and says, yeah, this could happen. God could do this. That's the difference between a faith that's civilized and a faith that's uncivilized. So now looking at the positive side, really looking primarily to a couple verses, but we'll dial in on verse 30. But now kind of turning the page to what does uncivilized faith look like? What does a risk-filled, courageous, on-the-edge, following Jesus faith look like? So look at verses at the beginning of chapter 13. Look at verses 1 and 2, because the first reality of an uncivilized faith, it does something very simple and basic but important. It actually believes God's promise. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Numbers 13. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. For each tribe of their family you shall send a man, every one a, a chief among them. What, is, what does it say? Send them into the land that I might give you? It's a good chance? 75% chance? No, he said, the land that I am giving you. What is God saying? It's already a done deal in God's mind. It's already a done deal in God's purpose. I'm going to give you this land. You just have to be obedient. This is something that God, this is not the first time this shows up in Israel's history. God, time and time again, says, there's a land I'm going to give you. There's a land I'm giving you. There's a land I'm giving you. They're, they're heading towards this. It's a promise that God continues to give and give and give. And now they're standing at the front door, at the doorstep of stepping into the, this promise that God has given them. And what do they say? Can't be done. But those two, Joshua and Caleb, looked through the lens of God and his promise and said, this can happen. This is going to happen. Why? Because God said so. God gave us a promise. One of the, the great tragedies of faith, although we do hopefully grow more mature as we grow older in our faith, but one of the things that we have a tendency to lose, and this is why Jesus said it many times, is we lose the faith that we used to have. Remember the innocence of when you first came to Jesus? You actually believed he could do things in your life. And then over time, you become disappointed with God and disillusioned, and sometimes people get in the way of what God's trying to do, and now you become jaded to believe that God could do something in your life, and you lose what? You lose the innocence of what God intended for your life. That's why Jesus says over and over again, if you want to what? Step into the kingdom of God, you have to do it as what? A child. It's not that you have to be naive and foolish, but that you have to have the innocence that actually believes that the God of the universe, when he says he's going to do something, he's actually going to do it. And some of us are convinced that that's not true because you've looked at something in your life and you've been disappointed by God and think that somehow God has let you down, but maybe your faith was in a person or maybe your faith was in something that God was not doing at that time in your life instead of getting on track with what he's wanting to do in your life. Just think about what was it like when you were a child? Think about if you're a parent and you have kids, what was it like when your child or children were young enough and they actually believed you could do anything and they trusted you? They would make their decisions based on the fact that they believed in you enough to do something that normally would be risky or would require courage or faith. When Courtney first learned to jump off of a diving board, the only way that I originally got her to do that, as I told her, I said, listen, I will go out in the middle of the deep end and I will tread water. When you jump off that diving board, I looked her in the eye and I said, I guarantee you, I will catch you. You know what I love about my daughter is that she's all in. And so when she looked at me, she's like, okay, let's do it. She didn't say, well, dad, are you sure you can tread water that long? I don't know. I've seen you swim. You're okay, you know? 
are you sure that when I jump, you're not going to miss me and I'm going to fall into the water and we're going to drown? She didn't see that. She's like, let's go. In fact, she's so all in, I probably, I didn't swim fast enough and she's almost jumping off the diving board before I even get into the middle of the deep end. And then she like, as soon as she hits the water and she comes up, she looks at me, she goes, again? I'm like, okay, let's do it again. I don't know how many times we did over and over again. Why? Because when I said I was going to be there, she trusted I would be there. That's faith. That's risking. Why? Because it's trusting that even though it's scary, God's going to be there. At the end of this service, in fact, I'm going to do something that probably I'm going to try not to cry. I'm going to have my daughter come up here because she's moving to Oregon this week, taking another leap of faith and following Jesus. She's going to go to a two-year internship and Bible college program a thousand miles away from mom and dad. The beauty of it is that mom and dad won't be there, but Jesus will be there and be working in her life. So you and I have to have the faith to believe that when God says he's going to do something, we trust him. We believe that he's actually going to do it. Second reality of uncivilized faith now look at verse 30, is that it stands in the midst of opposition. So in verse 30, the first part of verse 30, remember what's going on here. So this bad report is starting, the poison is starting to make its way into people's minds and hearts. And then what does it say in verse 3? It says, Caleb stands up and quiets the other spies and quiets everybody. And basically, basically stands up and says, shh. Because he'd had, at, at that point, Caleb had heard enough. And he had witnessed the same thing that the other 10 spies had witnessed, but he saw it differently. So he has the courage to stand up in the midst of this where the, he can tell that the flow is starting to change, that the current is changing, and it's going the wrong direction. So he stands up in the middle of it, and he stops the progress of where it's going. That takes courage. When you're in the middle of a situation where you can feel things are changing and everybody's going down a road they shouldn't be going down and the momentum is building fast and before you know it, you're going to be where nobody wants to be, do you have the courage in that moment to stand up and say, no, we're not going down that road? That's not where God wants us to go. That's difficult because immediately, if you're in that context, you know what you start looking at? You start, again, looking at your own limitations and looking at the problem and saying, I, I can't say that. I can't, I can't push back on that. I, I can't, I, I'm just going to let this go. And we, we remain silent. This is what happens when, 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 when that poison works its way, it can influence an entire nation of people. This is, this is not the, the only recording of this kind of thing happening to Israel. So if, if we all know the story of David and Goliath, which is a great Bible story, but I've mentioned before, the, the danger in reading a Bible story is that you and I know the beginning, the middle, and the end. Those who are reading about didn't know the beginning, the middle, and the end. They are in the story. And the story of David and Goliath is a great story because if you remember David, when he shows up to the battlefield, he wasn't going there to fight. He was a delivery boy. He was sent by his dad to deliver food to his brothers, the warriors on the front lines. In fact, there's a Hebrew word that, this is what's crazy, David was so marginalized by his own country and his own family, it's, it's a miracle that David actually believed God could do anything in his life. Because his dad actually called him, he used a Hebrew word that is the equivalent of basically calling your son a pipsqueak. He said he's the weakest, he's the least. Can you imagine? Thanks, dad, way to give me confidence in my life. But that's, that's the environment that David grows up in. And David shows up on the front lines between where, where Israel has drawn battle lines with the Philistines. And for day after day after day after day, a Goliath comes out on the, on, the, on the battlefield and mocks Israel. And this little pipsqueak, David, comes along, makes his delivery, and basically asks the question, what in the world are you guys doing here? Because he's hearing Goliath mock God. And what's David's response? This little wimp shepherd boy who wasn't strong enough to go fight a battle. He says, how dare you allow this guy to insult the armies of the living God? 
This is supposed to be Saul's role. Saul's the tall, strong, dark, handsome, you know, leader that can't even go out and take on Goliath. And so then David goes out on the battlefield, takes on Goliath, and wins. Why? Because David saw what nobody else could see. He saw that God could do this. And so what does he do? He stands in the middle of opposition. Can you imagine how intimidating that would be? To stand up in front of a country, actually to defy the king's order to not go to battle? That's what David did. When does that happen? It happens when you and I have the courage to believe God can do what he wants to do through us. Our church, our world needs more people like that, that stands up in the middle of the current and says, no, we're going to go to the way God wants us to go. And then the third reality of the uncivilized faith is that its default is yes instead of no. So I love it. If you go on in verse 30, what's Caleb's response? Let's go. We can do this. What are we waiting for? I mean, I love that. I love Caleb's, like, passion. Like, he sees the possibilities. He knows there's giants in the land. He knows the cities are fortified. What does he do? He's all, let's go. Why should we wait? He's just ready to jump in. And because of that, we'll see later, Caleb actually receives incredible reward for that. But, but what was different between Caleb and the ten spies? He had a default in his mind. His default was yes and not no. His first thought was, God's in this, we're going to do it. Not, I wonder if God's in this. His first Let's go. Let's make it happen. God is doing something. God's providing for us. And I think for some of us, I know this has been a hard part in my life that over time, God has had to help me change that. Because I, you can ask my wife, I've been, for most of my life, I've been a pessimist. Ah, it can't happen. That's not going to work. And my default's always been no, but slowly, God has started to change that as I start to see God do things that my default is now, yes, I believe that God can do this. And that's what we have to have because when there's a yes involved, then there's the opportunity for God to fulfill his purpose and his dream in his people. But if there's a no, it doesn't matter how great God is, it's not going to happen. At least not through his people because God's trying to work through his people. Anybody watch the show Fixer Upper with, you know, that show? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Joanna Gaines, that's right. So the whole thing, Chip and Joanna Gaines, they have their, their business called Magnolia Farms and Construction, and they do, they basically go and help people find a house, and they buy the house, and then they renovate it, and it's amazing. But what I love about that show, Kim and I, you know, we'll, every once in a while we'll get kind of on a kick where we'll watch like a home improvement show, you know, and then you start dreaming like trying to do it, and it's like, wow, that's a, that looks great. They do it all in an hour. Yeah, we're in the middle of like a... Right now, we, if you didn't hear, we had a flood in our house like six weeks ago, and now we're in like the middle of like a three-month like renovation of our downstairs. It doesn't work like that on TV, you know? It's a little different. But one of the things I love about that show is that Joanna is the visionary. She's the creative, and she's the one that she envisions what a house could look like, and she draws up these designs. And one of the things that I love about the show, and this is why they work so great together as a couple, his default is yes. She'll say, okay, well, I think we want to do this and this and this, and he'll look at it and go, yeah, we could do that. We could do that. Of course, it requires pulling out a post and putting in a header, and it's going to cost you know, a thousand more dollars. But he's all, I can do that. And so the default is, yes, I watch other shows. In fact, somebody talked to me in between services. They were comparing home improvement shows. They're like, yeah, we like to watch Fixer Upper. We don't like to watch Property Brothers because they're always about what you can't do. We like Chip and Joanna. They're always about what you can do. I'm like, oh, wow, you really watch those shows, don't you? But it's, it's that, that idea of when you see a problem, do you believe that there's a yes in there that God can actually accomplish it? Can you imagine if that was your default? I would rather err on the side of saying yes before God says yes than saying no to something God's saying yes to. And we do. God is usually saying yes. We're the ones that are the sticks in the mud. We're the ones that are holding back. We're the ones that don't have the faith when God is advancing and he's moving. 
It's not that God's calling us to be foolish. He's just saying, listen, your default should be yes, should be moving forward. And then the third or the fourth reality of uncivilized faith is that it walks in faith-filled confidence. So the last part of verse 30 is basically Caleb saying, we can accomplish this. We can overcome it. We can do this. I believe we can do this. And, and in that context, Caleb is not looking at himself or even Joshua and saying, hey, I know how good we are. And we can. No, he's not looking at himself. He's saying we can do this because he knows what God's up to. So there's this sense of, it's not cockiness or arrogance, it's confidence. I love being around people who have that confidence to know. It isn't like, it isn't just blind faith. It's this confidence, this deep-seated confidence. I know that God is in this and I know God can do this, so we need to move forward on this. I love being around those kind of people because I can feed off of that faith. But that means that there's something in us that is confident, not in our ability, but so confident in God's ability that it gives us a sense of feeling confident. And what is it, isn't, don't you, have you felt those moments in your life where you feel that? Where like, you're like, even in your, it's in that moment where you feel like you don't have enough faith and God comes along and he starts giving you faith to believe and like something rises up inside of you like, we can overcome this, we can do this. So many of you, if you've come to the church in the last few years since we made our transition from where we used to be over on Shasta to this current building here on Runway, uh, that was quite a journey. We called it Right Size. And it was moving from a large facility that was killing us financially to an appropriate size facility that actually was this crazy journey is we went from leasing and we went over here and we bought this, which is a miracle of God, and actually saved money on a monthly basis by buying a building. Totally God. But, but when we went through the right size process, I, I have a journal that I write in periodically and just things that God's doing or things that I know I'm processing through. And, and I go back periodically and I'll just spend a little bit of time just reading through my journal. Because anybody like me, you just forget that's why you journal. So I go back and start reading. So I went, a couple weeks ago, I went back and started reading through, and some of the stuff was what we were going through with Right Size. And some of you might recall this, but when we went through that, we actually, you know, we had to raise quite a bit of money. We had to, you know, had to take out a loan, and we, there was a lot of moving parts to get us here, but God just was walking us step by step through the process. And so I remember I, I got a call from our denomination and working through our lender and, and some requirements, and they said, basically, when we're looking at the numbers, we had already raised a good amount of money, and the majority of people had already given to, to right size. And they said, this, this is kind of critical. We, we look at the numbers, and in order for, to qualify for the loan and to keep moving forward in this process, you need to come up with $135,000 in the next two weeks. I remember sitting at my desk and going, whoa. <laughs> That's a lot of money. I said, okay, well, God has led us this far. And I hung up the phone, and I just said, okay, God, here you are. It's make or break, live or die right here. If you don't want us to go forward, because I knew at that point, we had no option as a church. If we stayed in Shasta, we would have been bankrupt. We could not afford it. And so I'm like, okay, God, you led us this far. And so I got an email to all the leaders, and I said, pray. And then I went to the church on the next Sunday and said, here's the reality. And I sent out an email, and this is what's crazy. We're not a huge church. But miraculously, through our church, and then even some gifts that came out of the blue, in two weeks, over $135,000 came in. I don't know how that happened. Honestly, I can't even do the math to make that work. And God did it. And then when we got to the process, if you remember, we had to get a conditional use permit, which basically says, says we can use this building for church purposes. That was one of the big hurdles we had to get over. So we had jumped through all the city requirements and led up to, now the last step was we had to go to the planning commission, and we had to present, our contractor and architect had to present what we were going to do. 
And so we had, we had so many delays and things got pushed back. And before you know it, we get to setting the date and we were coming into the summer. And so I contact, we contacted the city planner's office and said, okay, we need to get on the docket for the next planning commission. They said, oh, there's a problem. I'm like, what do you mean there's a problem? Like, well, we can't get you on the June one because it's already full and the planning commission doesn't meet in July. So you'll have to wait till August. That was eight weeks. And every day or every week that we were in, we were kind of in two places, it was costing us thousands of dollars. I said, that we just can't do that. So I sent an email, got out to leaders, pray. So no joke, the next morning, I get a call. I remember two, I remember I was walking, I was in the Target in the mall in Ventura. When I was walking along, my phone rings, I pick it up, and it's one of somebody, it's the guy who we were working with in, in the planning office in the city of Simi Valley. And he said, listen, and this is how he starts this, this never happens. <laughs> I'm like, this is either really good or really bad. And he said, listen, he said, we put out a call to all the planning commissioners. And normally they're all on vacation in July and we don't have a meeting. But in putting a, a call out to them, all of them happened to be in town in the next two weeks. And all of them said that they would hold a planning commission, commission meeting just for you. I'm like, say that again? Are you serious? He said, and again, this never happens. And I'm like... <laughs> I know why, because this is a God thing. And literally, two weeks later, we were before the planning commission and got approved for a conditional use permit. That never happens. Tell me when a city takes an eight-week delay and turns it into a two-week accelerated process. It doesn't work that way. That's a God. That's right, only God, right? Because we all think that the domain of God is somehow not in the city government, right? Even God works in the city government. How does that happen? Because God is at work. And if we actually believe that, actually trust that, that God does that in all kinds of areas of our life. And so he gives us this faith-filled confidence. And this is what I want to close with, is this. So if you continue to read through the story, and you actually you get into Numbers chapter 14, verse 24. Let me, let me read what God said about Caleb, and then what the outcome for Caleb was. So the sad part, remember this, is that now this whole generation of spies, if you read through the story, those ten spies and all of their family in that generation ended up, they all wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and that whole generation passes away and doesn't get access to the promised land. But listen to what God said of Caleb. He says, but my servant Caleb has a different attitude than others have. He has remained loyal to me, so I will bring him into the land he explored. His descendants will possess their full share of that land. And if you fast forward all the way to Joshua chapter 14, you're going to see, this is what's amazing. Caleb inherits Hebron. Hebron is the first territory that he and the tw 12 spies went into. That land where his foot stepped first is the very land that after 40 years of wandering and everybody else passed away, Caleb gets possession of. That's amazing. Why? Because Caleb had what? A different heart, a different attitude, a different spirit in him than everybody else that he believed. And because of his belief, it took 40 years and a whole generation. He walks into the land that God was giving to his people. And some of you are thinking, 40 years, that's a long time to wait. But there was something different about Caleb. He believed God. Even, even though over 40 years, he still believed. And God gave him what he promised him. For some of us today, you have become civilized in your faith because you think that God has forgotten the promise he's put in your life, and he hasn't. He may be on a longer process than you are, but he still has promises good in your life because he's God. And he's wanting us to live by faith and by risk and by courage 
and not just manage our life. The Christian faith is scary. Sometimes it's unpredictable. It's not easy. But I'll tell you this, it's absolutely fulfilling when we live at the edge of ourselves and leaning into what God wants to do. So would you close your eyes as we conclude this morning? Just with your eyes closed before I pray to conclude, I, I don't want anyone to, to walk away feeling like, okay, I gotta, I gotta work up faith now and I've gotta get some enthusiasm and some energy going. And that, that's not what this is about. This is not a, a kind of a rah-rah cheerleading kind of message. It's more of, you need to see your life differently. You need to see what God sees and not what your humanity is telling you. You're not just to live in denial, but God wants to give you the ability to see the way he sees. He wants to give you the eyes of Caleb and Joshua, not the eyes of the ten spies. So I don't know what it is that you may be facing in your life. I don't know what overwhelming circumstance God's not asking you to live in denial of the reality of your life, but he is saying this. He is at work in your life today. He is drawing you towards the future of tomorrow, and he is giving you the ability beyond yourself to accomplish what he's calling you to do. We are planted on a street called runway for a reason. And a runway doesn't always mean that someone has to be sent off to leave, but it is a place of launching. It is a place of, of the, the, the initiation of your journey to where God wants you to be. And maybe you found yourself today, and you've been taxing forever. It may feel like 40 years, and God's saying, it's time to take off. It's time to, to move forward. It's time to step beyond yourself. It's time to have faith to believe beyond your, the life that you're living. And so whatever that looks like for you this morning, would you, with the confidence that God gives you, would you step forward and risk? Would you do something that scares you to death, knowing that God is there and God is going to work and God will sustain you? And so, Lord, as we look through the eyes of Caleb this morning, we want to be people who live that uncivilized faith. So, Lord, give us the courage as we leave. Lord, I know that by your spirit you speak to each one of us and you are even highlighting right now what you want us to do. And for some of us, Lord, that scares us. For others, Lord, I know when we walk out the doors, we'll, we'll forget the, the, the things that you're doing right now. But I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us courage, that you would give us clarity, that you would remind us of the things you're calling us to. And Lord, maybe there's things that we will be called to in the next days ahead that we don't even know are coming. But Lord, because you, you're working in us, our default will be yes instead of no. So Lord, give us your faith, give us your confidence, so that, Lord, much like Caleb there will be a moment in our lives where we walk fully into what you have called us to be and to do, and we will look back and know, Lord, that you have been faithful throughout, throughout our lifetime to, to call us forward into the place that you want us to be, the things that you want to give us that we would take hold of in our lives, Jesus, in your name. Amen.